following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. As we've been looking in uh, Luke chapter 19, just to kind of give a quick background to today's passage, if you remember, uh, it began with Jesus' triumphal entry, uh, his grand entrance into Jerusalem where he, through the action of what he did, really declared himself as the rightful king of Israel. And as he uh, comes down from uh, the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem and he sees the city, he's moved and really heartbroken, and he stops and he weeps and laments over Jerusalem because he knows that, by and large, Israel will be lost because they've rejected him. Uh, Our story picks up today as uh, Jesus um, comes on and he enters into Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is he goes into the temple, and there he uh, attacks the merchants in the temple and drives them out. I know about you, but for me, this is always just like one of the most troubling. But I think I was scarred by this story as a child, right? I had, and this, you know, I, I'm old enough. I grew up in the day when children's Bibles were rated R. And uh, they came with pictures, but very graphic pictures, you know, like David holding uh, Goliath's head severed, you know. It was back in the good old days. They had this sissy stuff, you know, like we got nowadays. Made, made kids, you know, we'd... we'd and I remember this picture in my children's Bible of Jesus just with the rage of, like, you know, just going off with this whip in hand, turning over, just turning over the tables in the temple and going crazy. And I thought, wow, that's scary, right? And uh, for, um, for you, maybe you feel like, yeah, this just seems very uncharacteristic, right? Here's Jesus, seems kind of out of control, just raging on, uh, on the temple, as he turns tables upside down and, and drives uh, all the merchants and people selling cattle and, uh, you know, the lambs and drives them out of the temple. What a scene, right? Um, Luke actually has the most tamed down version of this account. Uh, some of the other gospel writers, you know, kind of capitalize on some of it. Luke tames it down, and, and this is his account. Uh, and, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Um, uh, Luke gives a very brief and, and, and tamed down, you know, there's no whips, uh, no zeal for the house of the Lord. Um, Jesus is not pictured as being necessarily angry, but definitely intense in his actions. Uh, so what is this all about? Well, I grew up, and part of the reason I kind of was so horrified or confused by this story is the church I grew up in commonly taught and applied this passage that what Jesus was saying is here is he doesn't like yard sales. You know, that uh, you're not supposed to sell stuff in church. And if you do, Jesus gets really, really angry about that, right? So um, uh, needless to say, I think that misses the point by millions of light years, okay? I don't think Jesus, uh, the one time in his life where he shows the most passionate zeal and kind of going off because he was worried that someday the church would have yard sales 
or would, you know, have coffee bars and sell cappuccinos downstairs, okay? Uh, I don't think that's the greatest evil in the world, right? Uh, so that's, that's kind of what I, what I heard. Uh, so what is it about? You know, much like the, the event of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, it is the event itself that proclaims a message. Uh, normally, Jesus, uh, and for, for three years, he's been preaching and teaching with words. He's been going to great lengths to explain the kingdom. But as he gets near to, near to Jerusalem, he starts preaching through what I would call wordless sermons. He does these very extreme things. And he intends the event to preach a message, right? So it's not so much what he says, it's what he does that's communicating truth. Uh, but it's important that we interpret his message correctly. So what, what is Jesus proclaiming in this very extreme action uh, as he drives the merchants, the money changers, uh, the sellers out of the temple? Um, well, I do believe it is. It is preaching without words. Um, and, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus, as I said, mostly taught with words. And so it's really important to see that when he adopts this form or format, that we, we were careful about how we understand it and how we interpret it. Um, the act that he's doing is driving out the merchants. Now, who were these people? Uh, to get some of the background of what's going on here. Who were these merchants and what were they selling? Well, uh, in, of course, in Jesus' day, and it was the season of Passover, Passover pilgrims would come from all over the Roman Empire. By this time, the Jews had been scattered far and wide, and it was a big deal and uh, very important for them to come and celebrate Passover at the temple. And it was a big deal. And if you were a Jew, wherever you live, to go to the temple and to present your Passover offerings there and celebrate Passover was, was, was enormous. It was an enormous deal. But it was complicated to take your, your, your sacrifice with you. You know, there was all these rules about checking sheep in. You couldn't take them in as carry-on, you know. So they weren't flying. Okay, it was a joke, right? Uh, it was complicated to take sheep with you, right? So the law actually made provisions for you to uh, not take your, your sacrificial lamb with you, you could buy it when you got to Jerusalem. And the law made provisions for this. So what the guys were doing was not uh, against the, the commandments. It was not against what was prescribed in the law. They were actually providing a very useful service for people who traveled long distances. In addition, there, there was a required a temple tax of half a shekel. Uh, and the temple did not take American Express or Roman whatever, drachmas or whatever. I don't know what Roman coinage was, but it had to be a shekel. So the money changers were there exchanging currency. People come with currency from all over where they lived, and they would exchange it for the half shekel tax that was required to pay as part of the worship. So, uh, so it creates a problem here, and the problem is this. Um, these guys are just doing their job, right? They're, they're providing a legitimate and necessary service to make things more convenient for pilgrims coming to celebrate Passover, right? So, so it seems kind of odd that Jesus would go after them. Um, so so what, what is the big deal? What is the problem here? Well, this gets interpreted a couple ways. One, uh, it's often argued that, well, the problem is 
you know, it was allowed to do this, but they were cheating people, right? They were charging, uh, you know, inflated rates, and they were ripping people off, and they kind of had people, uh, you know, over the barrel. They were taking advantage of them because where else would they go to buy these, uh, these lambs for sacrifice? So they were taking advantage of them, and they were cheating them. And so the argument goes that this is really about greed and dishonesty in the church, that, God, that Jesus is angry because they have corrupted the church and the temple as a holy place. Um, and, and so in this scenario, it's okay to have yard sales as long as you don't make a profit, right? Or don't make too much profit, right? You can have the coffee bar. You just can't make money off of it, right? You can't charge Starbucks prices or not more than Starbucks prices or something, right? Um, now, of course, it's true that uh, Jesus, if they were cheating, Jesus would be uh, upset by that and would certainly be against that. Uh, the problem is that there's no actual proof that they were. Right? There's no evidence that they were actually cheating people. The, the passage doesn't say that. Uh, historical evidence doesn't really support that one way or the other. It's inferred from the fact that Jesus calls it a den of robbers. So people make the assumption that what Jesus meant by that is that the merchants were stealing, were cheating people. But th that's an inference that, that may or may not be true, as we'll see. Right? In fact, I don't think it's true. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And there's very little in the passage that, that points in that direction. Right? Another explanation, uh, some people say, well, the problem is that uh, it, was, it was okay for them to sell, and maybe they re were or were not cheating. But either way, the temple had become far too commercial. And what Jesus was really attacking here was commercialism. That he didn't like that the temple had kind of become a place of big business uh, rather than a place of worship. Um, and, of course, so the application here would be, you know, churches should not be commercial into big business. Now, I'll be honest, I would love for this to be the meaning because I've got a sermon right here. I mean, whew, I could just go off on a tangent on how, you know, especially the wealthy Western churches have made a business out of Christianity. And, man, could I go off, right? The ca cappuccino machines and the, uh, the big lobbies and, uh, you know, you go into some uh, churches in the West and, and, you know, the lobby is like going into a movie theater, right? And uh, they're, they're selling something. And, um, you know, the Sunday school is like, you know, competing with Disneyland. And, and, you know, boy, I could go off, right? I'd love to. I'd love to go there. Can't, okay, can't. Because I don't think that's what this passage is about. I don't think uh, that Jesus is, uh, is casting them out because it's too commercial, right? Again, there's no evidence in the passage that points to that. I mean, there's nothing in anything Jesus says, or as we'll see, the, cue, the clues he gives us, that would indicate that's what this is about. I think it's about something very different. Uh, so here's the deal. You gotta, uh, we, we, we have to be able to interpret his actions. Uh, Jesus did this radical move. So we need to understand what it meant and what he was trying to communicate by what he did. So how do we do that? Well... Uh, some of you who are older, maybe, I don't know if they do this anymore, but when I was a kid, in cereal boxes, they would have toys. You know, they had those stupid, junky little toys, and I would get so excited, right? And, uh, you know, you'd dump the whole box of cereal out just to get the toy, and Mom would be really angry about that, and I could never understand why. And one of, one of the toys I remember getting was this decoder. It was so exciting, a spy decoder. 
and they had some secret message, right? And it was just a scramble of letters. But you had this key that showed, you know, which letters, what they really meant. And so you could go through and, you know, A actually equals Z and B actually equals Q. And you could painstakingly decode the message. It was so exciting, right? Well, in this story, Jesus gives us a key to decode his message. And, and the, the, the key or the code to decode it is simply this. He says, it is written... My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he quotes from two Old Testament passages. And he makes sure he's clear that it's a quote because he says, it is written. He says, you want to know what this is about? Uh, Look up these verses, right? And, of course, in their day, they didn't have, you know, Jeremiah 7.11. They just had phrases that they knew, right? So Jesus throws out these two phrases that every Jew, especially uh, the leaders of the church, the leaders of the temple, the chief priests, would have known these references. Right? They would have known where to go in the scrolls to find these. And so the first is, you know, my house should be a house of prayer. And the second is, you've made it a den of robbers. To understand what Jesus is doing here, we need to go to those, uh, those passages and interpret Jesus' actions through what's going on in those passages. All right? So we're going to do that. We're going to go, first of all, to Isaiah 56, 1 to 3, which is where the phrase, my house will be called the house of prayer. What what does Isaiah write there? Well, he writes this. He says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my deliverance will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, that is, who keeps justice, who who looks for salvation, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hands from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. And what's this about? Well, Jesus is talking, or Isaiah is talking about God's coming salvation. The promise that God will save, he will deliver, he will rescue. Um, But the foreigner and the eunuch were fearful that they would be left out. Why? Well, because the foreigner and the eunuch were both excluded from worship in the temple. They could not come into the temple. They could not participate at the deepest levels of sacrifice. Uh, They could not worship by giving offerings. And so their fear was, when God's salvation comes, we're going to miss it. We're going to be cut off and separated from God's saving work because we can't go into the temple. We're outside, right? Uh, And so they feared this great fear that God's salvation would come. And it was based on the belief and conviction that God's salvation would come primarily through worship in the temple. That if you wanted to be saved, it required worshiping God in the temple. So if you can't go there, you're kind of out, right? And they were fearful, but Isaiah continues, verse 6 and 7, he says, but, he goes to a section on the, he deals with the eunuchs, he says, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you out. He talks about the foreigners, I want to focus on the foreigners. He says, verses 6 and 7, and the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord uh, for the purpose of ministering to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast to my covenant... These I will bring to my holy mountain, 
which was the site of the temple, right? Uh, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Okay, what's, what's, what is Isaiah saying here? He's saying this. He's saying, look, there's coming a day of salvation when anybody, foreigner from any country, a eunuch, somebody with physical defects, somebody who up to this point has been disqualified from participating in temple worship. There is coming a day when those people will be able to join themselves to the Lord. Uh, In other words, they will be able to enter into a covenant relationship with God where they will be accepted into God's presence. They will be invited into his temple, uh, into the the very presence of God uh, for the purpose of loving God and serving him and ministering to him to honor him by keeping the sacredness of the Sabbath and to to live out this covenant relationship with God. They will absolutely experience God's God's salvation and they will no longer be turned away from the temple and from worshiping there. And in fact, their offerings will will be received and accepted because my house will be a house of prayer for the nations. Right? Uh, so what, is, what, is, what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, what he's saying here is that, that, the, that God has a vision for the temple. Right? God, when he, when he set up and instituted the temple and worshiped there, he had this vision and picture of what it would be. And the picture was this, that it would be a house of prayer for all the nations. Prayer uh, capturing, most of all, a fellowship and communing relationship with God. Right? Right, so it's not just petitioning prayer for, for needs for things, but prayer that inv- involves the whole conversation, the whole relationship between uh, God and man, where we enter into relationship with him and we talk with him. We, we bring our needs to him. We, we give him thanks and praise when he meets those needs. We commune with him and fellowship with him. Uh, uh, and it's available to all who ser- seriously seek God and his salvation. Right? All who seek to be joined to God. Anybody who wants to enter into that kind of relationship with God will be welcome and invited. Uh, and the purpose for that is, is to love and serve him. Right? We enter into a relationship with God, and through that we have the opportunity to love and serve him. That's why we come into the temple, to seek him and to show our love for him and to express our praise. And finally, and I think most of significantly, It comes with a promise that all those who want to come and who desire to have a loving relationship with God are going to be invited. And when they come in, what will happen? He says, I will bring you into my holy mountain. Okay, so God will invite them. And God will make them joyful in the house of prayer. He'll make them joyful in the house of prayer. So so get the picture here. God's vision for worship, God's vision for relationship with him is one where anybody would have access into his presence where they could enjoy him. Right? They could uh, joyfully celebrate and delight in who God is and what he's done for them, his blessings, his character, his, uh, his love for us as a father. That the center focal point of joy in our life would be God. God. 
right? We would love him. We would love to worship him. There would be something about our worship that is acceptable. In other words, it's satisfying. Uh, giving praise and worship to God is satisfying, first of all, to God. God delights in our worship and receives it joyfully. And we find it satisfying, sustaining, joy-giving to worship him. Right? There's something life-giving. Uh, and in fact, it's an experience that Isaiah describes as being life-transforming. We become people who joyfully live out the covenant. We, we keep his laws and commands because we enjoy him and because worshiping him is life-transforming. Right? So Jesus is saying, so, so to summarize it, but this is what he's doing. He's saying, uh, this is my vision for the temple and for worship, that it would be this kind of place where people are seeking God and they are finding God. And through that, the, the temple, uh, the, the relationship with him is a refuge. It's a place where we find joy and we, we find the deepest joy of life. In fact, in fact it's the center uh, focus of, of our life because that is, is where we, we find true and lasting joy. We don't need to go searching other places for it. And it changes us, right? Jesus says that's, that's what God longs for for his temple. But you have made it something very different, right? He says, but you have made it uh, a den of robbers, right? You have turned it into something very different from God's original design and plan. So what does he mean by that? What does he mean by a refuge, a, a, a refuge for robbers, a den of thieves? Well, this comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. And again, we need to look at it real briefly to find out what this means, right? And this is where we get confused. And uh, we don't really know what Jesus means by den of robbers, and we assume that what he means by it is somebody stealing something. It must be the merchants, right? Uh, or maybe it's the chief priests who are getting a, a, a cut of the profits. But when we look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, we see something very different. So let's look briefly at that. Jeremiah writes this, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who entered the gates to worship the Lord. Okay, so Jeremiah is, is standing in the temple, just as Jesus was. And he's calling out to all who are entering the gates, saying, Hey, God's got a word for you as you come into the temple to worship him. There's something you need to know as you enter. Right? And, and what, he, what, he, what his message is, is don't put false confidence in the temple. Okay, do not wrongly trust in the temple to save you. Notice what he says. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Okay, he says those words will ruin you, right? Because they were elevating the place of the temple. We'll see why in a minute. Reading on, okay? So the temple, he says, will not be a shelter for those who are thieves. Why, why, why is it deceptive? He says, well, because it cannot be a safe place for robbers. Verse 8, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely? Will you, will you make offerings to Baal 
and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come to me and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Hallelujah. Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Uh, finally, uh, he says the only hope, uh, the only way you can find true protection in the temple is through repentance. Verse 6, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. Um, so what's he talking about here? Well, first of all, he's saying that you have the wrong idea about salvation. You have the wrong notion that the temple will save you. And this had been a problem in Jerusalem from the very beginning, from Solomon's temple. Uh, and in the days of Jeremiah, they were still worshiping in Solomon's temple, and they had this belief that God would not allow this temple to be destroyed. Right? And they thought, you know, God's going to protect Jerusalem. He's going to protect his temple. He's not going to let anything bad happen. So if we're connected with the temple, we're safe. God's not going to bring calamity on us. As long as we show up at the temple and do our thing at the temple, we're good. But that was a wrong notion of salvation and a wrong idea of, uh, of this notion that it was the temple itself that saved them and their worship at the temple that saved them. Um, but Jesus says, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah says, um, you're wrong. You're wrong. And that, in fact, their worship at the temple had become simply empty rituals. Empty and meaningless rituals. And you see, the problem was that they were no longer trusting in their covenant relationship with God to save them. They were trusting in the, in the temple to save them. And they believed if we go through these motions of, of showing up and, and offering these sacrifices... It really doesn't matter how we live or what we do with our life. We can steal, we can cheat, we can be murderers, we can worship other gods. As long as we show up once in a while and do our religious duty at the temple, God will save us. Uh, and so as a result, their, their worship had become very empty. And Isaiah, in fact, criticizes, he says, why are you bringing all these offerings to me? They're wearing me out. Stop it. Right? They're meaningless because they had become void and empty of meaning. <coughs> so so what, what Jeremiah is saying is simply this. He says, it is, it, uh, you, are, you are not entering the temple to be about relationship with God. It has become empty religious duty. And that will not save you. Right? You've been deceived. Right? You cannot be saved apart from covenant relationship with God uh, it's given you a false sense of, of security <coughs> a false sense of hope um, and you won't be saved and he says look think about this okay is God going to be okay with this that you go out and worship other idols and cheat and steal and, and commit adultery 
but you show up in the temple and say, I'm delivered. Right? You've made it a den of robbers. Right? You have made the temple a refuge, a holdout, a hideaway for criminals. To put it in modern terms, you've made it a gangster hideaway for the mafia. Right? You, 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 you want to live like criminals. You want to you be the mafia. And you need a hideout to run away to retreat to when you've done your criminal activity and you've made the temple that place and you think God is okay with that. He's not. God is not okay with that. Um, You see, that's what he means when he says, you have made it a den of robbers. You've made the temple a safe house, a safe haven for wicked people. You've misunderstood the way of salvation. That's what Jeremiah is saying. And so Jeremiah says, look, your only hope is is repentance. You must amend your ways. Verse 5, he says, you must amend your ways and your deeds. You need to turn away from evil and wickedness, and you need to seek and pursue God. If you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner or the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, this temple, this land, right? Then I will abide with you in relationship. But you've got to repent. You've got to turn away from the wickedness of your life. Um, Is the temple a place for sinners? Absolutely. But what Jeremiah is saying is it has to be, when you come into the temple, it's got to be life-transforming. Right? If your experience of worship in the temple is not changing your life, if you're not encountering God in a way that is uh, causing you to turn away from the evil and wickedness of your heart and confess and repent it and turn towards God in his ways, you cannot be saved. So what is Jesus saying in this message? You know, why does he chase out the merchants? Um... I don't believe it's, it's about greed or corruption in the church. Now, obviously, greed and corruption does not belong in the church. Um, I get that, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. It is not about the church becoming too commercial or big business. Also probably true, but not what he's saying here, I don't believe. Right? He's saying this, and he's saying it to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. You have the wrong understanding of what is required for your salvation. You think the temple is a refuge, is a safe place, but it's not if your heart is not changed. If your life is not transformed by an encounter with God, you are lost. Okay. God's vision is that it would be a house of prayer, but you have made it a refuge for criminals. You cannot be saved by keeping empty rituals. You cannot find refuge or salvation in the temple um, by simply carrying out the traditions with no meaning. Uh, If your life is not being transformed by the power of a personal encounter with the living God, you are missing it. And so he chases out the merchants uh, to show that the whole sacrificial system, the giving of the shekels, everything that they were doing was meaningless. Right? Right? 
It was not so much about the merchants. It was about Israel and the way they were worshiping God. Right? It says, you made my house a shelter that's not true. Right? So, so then what is the right understanding? How do we turn the temple back into the thing that God desired? And you know, Jesus is picturing here not just the temple in Jerusalem. He pictures the church. You and I as the people of God built together, Peter says, as living stones into a holy temple to offer sacrifices of praise to him. Well, three things, real quick. Real quick. Uh, salvation comes through covenant relationship with God. Right? We celebrated this morning Jesus' work on the cross to create a new covenant so that we could have new terms of peace with God through his blood. Right? But it's not just a transaction. It's not just a banking transaction. It's not just a matter that you owed God a debt because of sin and Jesus paid the debt, like the song says, you know, and now you're saved. True, but it's more than that. It's about covenant relationship. It's about coming into meaningful relationship where you encounter God's presence in his temple, which we are part of. We make up together. Right? We encounter him through relationship. Um, and we're joined to that relationship not through empty traditions and rituals. Okay, now we, we, we do have traditions and rituals. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Right? The problem is not the tradition. The problem is how we approach it. Right? Do we come to these things with great purpose and meaning because because we are in close relationship with God. And through worship, we seek to have a powerful, joyful encounter with him. Right? It requires repentance. Right? Uh, we cannot live one way outside of, you know, Monday through Saturday, outside of church, and then show up on Sunday morning and do church and expect that to be saving. If our encounter with God, whether it's Sunday morning or Tuesday night, right, is not life-transforming, be wary that you have not put your hope in a false salvation. Our encounter with God, Jesus is saying, must be life-transforming, life-changing. Second thing, um, the heart of worship, whether it's corporately, with all of us gathered together here, or when we all get together with all the churches on uh, the last Sunday of this month, or we gather with the, the, the multitudes in heaven, what is the heart and purpose and center and focus of our worship? Uh, is it going through some kind of religious duty? You know, well, I know I'm supposed to go to church. I know I have to give 10%. I'm supposed to sing these songs I don't even know and most of them I don't like. I have to listen to a really long sermon that I mostly don't understand. But hey, I checked off the box. I did my duty, so now, God, you owe me something. Well, if that's what it is, uh, that would make Jesus angry, right? That's what fires him up. Because we've turned worship into something dead. 
we've made it uh, a house of robbers. Rather, God's vision, God's heart, God's desire is that worship would be the source of our greatest joy. Our greatest joy. God wants to be enjoyed. He wants to be uh, delighted in. To really love and serve and truly worship him, we have to actually like him. I know there's a saying going around that says, and, and maybe it's true, you know, that you don't have to like people to love them. Okay, you ever said that? And there are certainly people that you have to love that it's really hard to like. I get that, right? And, and it's true sometimes. We are to love our enemies. We don't like them. However, that should never characterize our relationship with God. Well, I love him, but I don't really like him. And the problem is that, sure, you can do that, but that's not the highest form of love. Right? That's never the highest form of love. The highest form of love is a love where you delight in that person. And you're so excited to be with them. When I was a kid, I was really, believe it or not, quite small for my age, height-wise as well as scrawny. You know, the wind blew too hard. It just blew me down the street. And so when it came to sports and athletics, you know, at school, we'd play whatever it was, and the PE teacher would line us all up in a line, and we'd pick the two most popular biggest kids in the whole class, and they'd be team captains, and they would go through this painful exercise of picking teams, right? And it never failed that I was like the third from last, the two picked after me were both crippled, right? Girls. So, um, so it was bad, you know. So um, I knew that it wasn't like, oh, yeah, they picked me. It was like, oh, they picked me because they had to, right? Because I was all that was left, and they had to pick me, right? Nobody celebrated joyfully that I was on their team, who did they pick? They picked the fastest, biggest, most athletic kids. They wanted them. They were excited and joyful that they were on their team. It was like, okay, we'll take Tim. That's just sad. Start for life. Well, God doesn't want us to pick him last, right? The kind of love and worship he wants is we pick him first because we are delighted in him. Right? He is our first choice for joy in life. We want him to be the center of what gives us the greatest thrill and delight and satisfaction in life is being with him and in his presence. That's God's vision for his church, for worship, for his temple. And finally, um, his, his vision is that we would be transferred through that encounter. That we would come to worship him, to, to, to find salvation in him, to, to love and serve him to praise him, and as we do that, our life's transformed. That the joy we derive from him so alters us. The experience of, of being in fellowship with him so changes us that we go out different people. People who, who long to love others. Who even though we, it's hard, we we're patient with people who are difficult. We are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Right? We're transformed. So what is church to you? <clears throat> you know, why do you come on Sunday mornings? Honestly, you know, I don't have to answer to me, just between you and God. Why do you come? Um, 
What is the driving force in your daily life as you have quiet time, as you develop spiritual habits, or don't have those disciplines in your life? Um, where are you going to find joy in your life? Right? What, what is the pursuit of your life that you believe will make you happy? Is it ministry success or comfort or some sense of security? Or is it your relationship with Christ? Um, do you find and experience joy in God? Or is your religious life one of drudgery and of empty religious ritual, of going through the motions, void of a living, dynamic, life-changing relationship with Him? You know, God invites us to so much more, right? He invites us to so much more. You've got to be very careful we don't make it something dead and empty. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.